Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the April 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of Imperialism and Socialism in Italy by Lenin from 1915. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe and consider supporting on Patreon at patreon.com slash socialism for all. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. So this piece was published in Communist 1915, numbers 1 and 2, signed N. Lenin, published according to the text in that journal. The source is Lenin Collected Works, Progress Publishers, 1974, Moscow, Volume 21, HTML Transcription and Markup by D. Walters and R. Simbala, and it's online in the Lenin Internet Archive within the Marxists Internet Archive. Thanks as usual to MIAMarxists.org for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. So let's get into it. To clarify the problems presented to socialism as a result of the present imperialist war, comment World War I, it's useful to cast a glance at the various European countries so as to learn to distinguish between national modifications and details of the general picture and the fundamental and essential. Distance lends clarity to the view. The less the resemblance between Italy and Russia, the more interesting it is, in certain respects, to compare imperialism and socialism in the two countries. In the present note, we intend only to call attention to material on this problem, as provided by a bourgeois professor, Roberto Michels, in his book Italian Imperialism, and by a socialist, T. Barboni, in a book entitled Internationalism or Class Nationalism, The Italian Proletariat and the European War, both of which have been published since the outbreak of the war. The garrulous Michels, who is just as superficial as he is in his other writings, hardly touches upon the economic aspect of imperialism. His book, however, contains a collection of valuable material on the origin of Italian imperialism and on the transition that comprises the essence of the times and is so manifest in Italy, namely, the transition from a period of wars for national liberation to a period of imperialist and reactionary wars of plunder. Revolutionary democratic Italy, i.e., revolutionary bourgeois Italy, the Italy that cast off the yoke of Austria, the Italy of the times of Garibaldi, is changing before our very eyes into an Italy that is oppressing other peoples and plundering Turkey and Austria, an Italy of a crude, repulsively reactionary and rapacious bourgeoisie whose mouth waters at the prospect of a share in the loot. Like any respectable professor, Michels, of course, considers that his servility to the bourgeoisie is, quote, scientific objectivism. He calls this sharing of the loot, quote, partitioning of that part of the world which still remains in the hands of debilitated peoples, ouch, unquote, disdainfully rejecting as, quote, utopian the viewpoint of socialists hostile towards colonial policies of any kind. Michels repeats the arguments of those who think that Italy, judging by the density of her population and the intensity of emigration from that country, quote, should have been the second colonial power, second only to Britain. Michels repudiates by a reference to Britain the argument that 40% of the Italian people are literate and that even today cholera riots, etc. take place there. Was not Britain, he asks, a country of unparalleled poverty, humiliation, famine among the working masses, and widespread drunkenness, misery and squalor in the city slums in the first half of the 19th century, when the British bourgeoisie were so successfully laying the foundations of their present colonial power. It must be admitted that, from the bourgeois standpoint, this argument is unassailable. Colonial policies and imperialism are not unsound, but curable disorders of capitalism. 
the way Philistines think, together with Kautsky. They are an inevitable consequence of the very foundations of capitalism. Competition among individual enterprises inevitably leads either to their becoming ruined or ruining others. Competition between individual countries confronts each of them with the alternative of falling behind, ever running the risk of becoming a second Belgium, or else ruining and conquering other countries, thus elbowing their way to a place among the, quote, great powers. Let's just take a pause there for a second. This is the thing that we're, when we talk about libertarianism, always talking about. The libertarians call the current system, which is advanced capitalism, or imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, they call that communism. It is not. What they don't like is they sort of fetishize the early ascendant stage of capitalism, when there are many small enterprises all vying for position, and they haven't yet destroyed each other and consolidated through competition, which is exactly what Lenin is describing here. So you get this sense, this false sense, that that is permanent, it lasts forever. No, it's just a temporary stage. But the libertarians won't accept that. They won't let it go, and they want to somehow get back to that. But it's not possible, because that was just the early stage of capitalism. Trying to explain this to them, however, is nearly impossible due to the irrationality and willful ignorance that they tend to exhibit. But this is key. What Lenin is pointing out here is that within an individual capitalist country, there's competition among individual enterprises, and inevitably that leads either to their becoming ruined or ruining others. There are winners and losers in that competition. The winners tend to absorb the operations of the other, or at least their market share and territory. And this process really just goes in one direction. Overall, it does not go backward. But then that's within one country, but then the same thing happens between entire countries. So that country either, as Lenin says, pushes its way to the head of the line to get a place among the, quote, great powers, the leading imperialists, or it falls behind. So we see Russia today. So 30 years ago, the Soviet Union was politically destroyed. That took the economy with it. Russia was plunged into chaos, mostly through the 90s, and then it restabilized around 2000 uh, along capitalist lines. And there was some help from capitalist powers in setting that up. They didn't want it to go socialist again, of course, because they wanted to privatize everything, sell off all of the state-owned enterprises for pennies on the dollar, run them for profit, and so on. And Russia now, having run for about 20-some years on capitalist lines, is getting big enough that it's trying to elbow its way up to that place among the great powers. But I have to say, I love Lenin's phrase, becoming a second Belgium. So, you know, in other words, a capitalist power that loses its place, no longer has that prestige and, and so on. Kind of like Spain and Portugal, you know, drop down lower on the rungs of the ladder. Anyway, you get the point. Let's continue. Italian imperialism has been called poor people's imperialism because of the country's poverty and the utter destitution of the masses of Italian emigrants. Arturo Labriola, the Italian chauvinist, who differs from his former opponent, G. Plekhanov, only in that he somewhat sooner revealed his social chauvinism, which he reached via petty bourgeois semi-anarchism, not petty bourgeois opportunism, wrote in his booklet on the Tripolitanian War, 1912, quote, It is obvious that we are fighting not only against the Turks, but also against the intrigues, the intimidations, the money, and the armies of plutocratic Europe. 
which cannot tolerate that small nations should dare to make a single gesture or to say a single word that will compromise its iron hegemony, unquote. Corradini, leader of the Italian nationalists, declared at the same time, quote, just as socialism was a method of freeing the proletariat from the bourgeoisie, nationalism will be for us Italians a method of freeing ourselves from the French, the Germans, the British, the North and South Americans, who are our bourgeoisie. Any country which has more colonies, capital and armies than, quote, we have, deprives, quote, us of certain privileges, certain profits or super profits. Just as among individual capitalists, super profits go to the one whose machinery is superior to the average or who owns certain monopolies, so among nations, the one that is economically better off than the others gets super profits. It is the business of the bourgeoisie to fight for privileges and advantages for its national capital and to fool the nation or the common folk with the aid of Labriola and Plekhanov by passing off for a war of national liberation the imperialist struggle for the quote, right to plunder others. So quick comment here. Super profits is Lenin's term when he's writing about social chauvinism. People who claim to be socialist, but then are chauvinist towards their country and um, basically align with the bourgeoisie. So their, quote, socialism becomes class collaborationist, actually. And the working class movement that they're leading, what makes it social chauvinist, is that they're really just trying to get their working class, a bigger share of the super profits, which um, are being imported for, into the country from imperialist projects. In other words, there are profits which are generated by capitalism within the country. And then super profits is the term for the profits which are taken from imperial projects abroad. Socialist movements which are not anti-imperialist then become social chauvinist because they are not internationalist in this way striving for international liberation of the proletariat and the freedom of the various colonized nations from colonialism. Continuing, prior to the Tripolitanian War, Italy did not plunder other nations, at least to no large extent. Is this not an intolerable slight to the national pride? The Italians are oppressed and humiliated as compared with other nations. Italian emigration was 100,000 annually in the 1870s. It now stands at between 500,000 and 100,000. All these people are paupers, driven from their country by starvation in the literal sense of the word. All of them provide labor power for the worst paid branches of industry. This mass inhabits the most crowded, poverty-stricken, and squalid sections of the American and European cities. From 1 million in 1881, the number of Italians abroad rose to 5.5 million in 1910, the vast majority of this mass living in the rich and, quote, great countries, for whom the Italians are the crudest, most unskilled, poor, and defenseless laboring mass. Here are the main countries using cheap Italian labor. France, 400,000 Italians in 1910, 240,000 in 1881. Switzerland, 135,000, up from 41,000 in 1881. Austria, 80,000, doubled from 40,000 previously. Germany, 180,000, up from 7,000. The United States of America, 1,779,000, up from 170,000. Brazil, 1.5 million, up from 82,000. Argentina, 1 million, up from 254,000. 
quote, glorious France, which 125 years ago fought for freedom and therefore calls its present war for her own and the British slaveholders, quote, colonial rights, a war of liberation, houses hundreds of thousands of Italian workers in areas that are virtually ghettos. The petty bourgeois canaille of this, quote, great nation do all that they can to keep these people at a distance and insult and humiliate them in every possible way. The Italians are contemptuously dubbed Macaroni. The great Russian leader should recall how many contemptuous nicknames are current in our country for non-Russians whose birth does not entitle them to the noble domination privileges that served the Purishkeviches as a means of oppressing both the great Russian and the other peoples of Russia. So comment here, Purishkevich was an extreme reactionary anti-Semite, basically a fascist, but before fascism per se existed, extreme right nationalist. And that's the point that Lenin is making here. So Great Russia, that was Russia proper within the Russian Empire. So in other words, there were many contemptuous nicknames within the Russian Empire for people who were not Russian by birth, that is, quote, Great Russian. And what Lenin says here about giving that slight privilege to the Great Russian nationality serves the Purishkeviches, serves the extreme right, and it's a means of oppressing both the Great Russian and the other people, having that system set up of national enmity and that sort of hierarchy of nationality which takes your focus off of the class struggle. Continuing, in 1896, France, that great nation, concluded a treaty with Italy by which the latter undertook not to increase the number of Italian schools in Tunisia. Since then, the Italian population of Tunisia has increased sixfold. There are 105,000 Italians in Tunisia as against 35,000 Frenchmen, but there are only 1,167 holders of land among the former, with an aggregate of 83,000 hectares, whereas the latter include 2,395 landowners who have grabbed 700,000 hectares in that colony. How can one fail to agree with Labriola and other Italian Plekinovites that Italy is, quote, entitled to possess its colony in Tripoli, oppress Slavs in Dalmatia, carve up Asia Minor, etc. There's a footnote from Lenin here. It is highly instructive to note the connection between Italy's transformation into an imperialist country and the government's agreeing to electoral reform. The latter increased the number of voters from 3,219,000 to 8,562,000. In other words, it introduced almost universal suffrage. Prior to the Tripolitanian War, Giolitti, who carried out the reform, was bitterly opposed to it. Quote, the motivation of the change of line by the government and the moderate parties, as Michel's quote, was essentially patriotic. Notwithstanding their long-standing theoretical aversion from a colonial policy, the industrial workers, and more so the lower strata, fought against the Turks with perfect discipline and obedience, contrary to all expectations. Such slavish behavior toward the government's policy merited a reward to induce the proletariat to persevere along this new road. The president of the Council of Ministers declared in Parliament that, by his patriotic behavior on the battlefield of Libya, the Italian worker had proved to the country that he had reached the highest stage of political maturity. He who is capable of sacrificing his life for a noble cause is also capable of defending the interests of the country as a voter, and he therefore has a right that the state should consider him worthy of full political rights." Unquote. The Italian ministers are good talkers. Still better are the German, quote, 
radical social democrats who are repeating the follow servile argument, quote, we have done our duty by helping you to loot foreign countries, but you do not wish to give us universal suffrage in Prussia, unquote. So you can see there another face of social chauvinism trying to get rights within the capitalist country, the imperialist power, advanced capitalist country, in other words, an imperialist power, by serving imperialism. Oh, we're going to go fight your imperialist wars, now give us rights. Well, no. Why are you asking for these rights for serving them? Why serve death? Why serve capital? You're going to pick up arms to serve empire? If you're going to pick up arms, do it to liberate yourself and the colonized people. No war but class war. Back to the main text. Just as Plekhanov supports the Russian war of, quote, liberation against the Germans striving to turn Russia into a colony, Visalati, leader of the reformist party, has raised an outcry against the, quote, invasion of Italy by foreign capital, namely German capital in Lombardy, British in Sicily, French in Piacentino, Belgian in the streetcar enterprises, etc., 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 the question has been squarely put, and one must acknowledge that the European war has done humanity enormous good by actually confronting hundreds of millions of people of various nationalities with an alternative. Either defend, with rifle or pen, directly or indirectly in any form whatever, the dominant nation and national privileges in general, as well as the prerogative or the claims of one's, quote, own bourgeoisie, that is to say, be its adherent or lackey, or else utilize any struggle, particularly the clash of arms for dominant nation privileges, so as to unmask and overthrow every government, in the first place, one's own, by means of the revolutionary action of an internationally united proletariat. There is no middle road. In other words, the attempt to take a middle stand means, in effect, covertly taking the side of the imperialist bourgeoisie. Barboni's booklet is, in substance, entirely devoted to covering up this latter act. Barboni poses as an internationalist exactly as our Mr. Patrasov does. He argues that, from the internationalist point of view, it is necessary to ascertain the success of which side will be more useful or harmless to the proletariat. In other words, lesser evilism. And, of course, he has decided this question against Austria and Germany. In a perfectly Kautskyist spirit, Barboni proposes to the Italian Socialist Party solemnly to proclaim the solidarity of the workers of all countries, in the first place, of course, of the belligerent countries, to proclaim internationalist convictions, a program of peace on the basis of disarmament and national independence of all nations, including the formation of a, quote, League of All Nations for a reciprocal guarantee of their integrity and independence, unquote. It is in the name of these principles that Barboni declares that militarism is a, quote, parasitic phenomenon in capitalism, something, quote, not at all necessary, okay, that Germany and Austria are imbued with, quote, militarist imperialism, that their aggressive policies have been a, quote, standing threat to European peace, that Germany has, quote, constantly rejected the proposals for a restriction of armaments advanced by Russia and Britain etc., etc., and that the Socialist Party of Italy should declare itself in favor of Italy's intervention on the side of the Triple Entente at the opportune moment. What remains unknown is the principles that make the bourgeois imperialism of Britain preferable to that of Germany. Germany's economic development in the 20th century has been more rapid than that of the other European countries. In the partition of colonies, she was badly, quote, wronged. 
Britain, on the other hand, has developed far more slowly. She has grabbed a host of colonies where, far from Europe, she often uses methods of oppression no less brutal than those of the Germans. With her great wealth, she hires millions of soldiers of various continental powers to plunder Austria, Turkey, etc. In essence, Barboni's internationalism, like that of Kautsky, is nothing but a verbal defense of socialist principles, behind which hypocritical cover his own bourgeoisie, the Italian, is actually defended. One cannot fail to notice that Barboni, who has published his book in Free Switzerland, where the censor deleted only half a line on page 75, evidently criticizing Austria, has not deemed it necessary in its 143 pages to mention the main principles of the Basel Manifesto, or conscientiously not to analyze them. Comment there. We have the Basel Manifesto on the channel. This was the agreement among socialist parties in Europe not to support the war. Then, of course... Many of them did anyway. This was the great betrayal of opportunism of the Second International. Continuing, on the other hand, our Barboni quotes with deep sympathy two former Russian revolutionaries who are now being publicized by the entire Francophile bourgeoisie, the petty bourgeois anarchist Kropotkin and the social democratic Philistine Plekhanov. No wonder, Plekhanov's sophisms do not differ in substance from Barboni's. In Italy, however, political freedom more easily tears the veil from such sophisms, revealing more clearly Barboni's actual stand as an agent of the bourgeoisie in the workers' camp. Barboni regrets the, quote, absence of a real and actual revolutionary spirit within German social democracy, exactly in the same way as Plekhanov. He warmly greets Karl Liebknecht, just as he is greeted by the French social chauvinist, who do not see the beam in their own eye, but he decidedly declares that, quote, we cannot speak of the bankruptcy of the Second International, that the Germans, quote, did not betray the spirit of the International, inasmuch as they were prompted by a bona fide conviction that they were defending the fatherland. In Kautsky's sanctimonious vein, but with an admixture of romance eloquence, Barboni declares that the International is prepared, after a victory over Germany, to, quote, forgive the Germans as Christ forgave Peter a moment of distrust, to heal by oblivion the deep wounds inflicted by a militarist imperialism, and to extend a hand for an honorable and brotherly peace, unquote. A moving scene, Barboni and Kautsky, probably with aid from our Kosovsky and Axelrod, forgiving each other. While quite pleased with Kautsky and Gezda, with Plekhanov and Kropotkin, Barboni is displeased with his own Socialist Labor Party in Italy. He complains that in this party, which before the war was fortunate enough to rid itself of the reformists Bisaladian company, an atmosphere has been created which, quote, cannot be breathed by those who, like Barboni, do not agree to the slogan of, quote, absolute neutrality, that is, to a determined struggle against those who stand for Italy joining the war. Poor Barboni complains bitterly that, in the Italian Socialist Labor Party, men like him are labeled intellectuals, quote, individuals who have lost contact with the masses, quote, people hailing from the bourgeoisie, who have, quote, strayed from the straight path of socialism and internationalism. Our party, says Barboni indignantly, fanaticizes more than it educates the multitude. An old song, it's the Italian variation of the well-known theme of Russian liquidators and opportunists, decrying the, quote, demagogy of the wicked Bolsheviks who, quote, incite the masses against the dear socialists of Nasha Zarya, the organizing committee, and Chikaidze's Duma group. But what an invaluable admission this is by an Italian social chauvinist, in the only country where, for several months, 
the platforms of the social chauvinists and of the revolutionary internationalists could be freely discussed, the working masses, the class-conscious proletariat, have sided with the latter, whereas the petty bourgeois intellectuals and opportunists have lined up with the former. Neutrality is a narrow-minded egoism, a non-understanding of the international situation. It is baseness towards Belgium and absenteeism, and the absent are always wrong, says Barboni, entirely in the spirit of Plekhanov and Axelrod. But since there are two legal parties in Italy, one reformist and the other a social democratic labor party, comment social democratic or social democracy was what they called Marxism at that time. This was prior to the split between what we today call social democracy and communism. Continuing, and since in that country it is impossible to fool the public by covering up the nudity of the Patrasovs, Cherevanins, Levitskys, and company with the fig leaf of Chikaidze's Duma group or of the organizing committee, Barboni frankly admits the following, quote, From this point of view, I see more revolutionism in the activities of the reformist socialists, contradiction in terms, but who have been quick to realize the enormous importance that such a change in the political situation in consequence of a victory over German militarism, will have for the future anti-capitalist struggle, and who, with perfect consistency, have espoused the cause of the Triple Entente, than there is in the tactics of the official revolutionary socialists, who, like a tortoise, have hidden under a shell of absolute neutrality." Unquote. In connection with this valuable admission, it remains for us only to express the wish that some comrade familiar with the Italian movement should collect and systematically analyze the vast and most interesting material furnished by Italy's two parties, as to which social strata and which elements, with whose aid and with which arguments have defended the revolutionary policy of the Italian proletariat on the one hand, and servility to the Italian imperialist bourgeoisie on the other. The more such material is gathered in various countries, the more clearly would the class-conscious workers see the truth as to the causes and significance of the Second International's collapse. So just a comment in case that isn't clear, Lenin is saying there are two, quote, socialist parties, one more reformist and opportunist, one actually Marxist. And he was saying for people in a position to do so, familiar with the movement and all the publications, gather them up, compare the two, who backs each one? Is it the proletariat? Or is it the imperialist bourgeoisie? What are the arguments that they use? And so on. Continuing. In conclusion, we would like to note that, confronted by a workers' party, Barboni attempts to use sophistry so as to play up to the workers' revolutionary instincts. The internationalist socialists of Italy, who are opposed to a war which, in fact, is being waged for the imperialist interests of the Italian bourgeoisie, are depicted by him as adherents of a cowardly abstinence, a selfish desire to hide from the horrors of war. Quote, a people educated in a fear of the horrors of war, he says, will probably also be afraid of the horrors of a revolution, unquote. Together with this disgusting attempt to assume the guise of a revolutionary, we find a crudely practical reference to the, quote, clear words of Minister Salandra, who said that, quote, order will be maintained at any cost, and that attempts to hold a general strike directed against the war mobilization will only lead to, quote, useless carnage. Quote, we could not prevent the Libyan, Tripolitanian war, less so will we be able to prevent the war against Austria, unquote. Like Kautsky, Kunau, and all the other opportunists, Barboni, with the basest intention of fooling a definite section of the masses, deliberately ascribes to the revolutionaries the silly plan to, quote, 
frustrate the war, quote, immediately, and to allow themselves to be shot down at a moment most opportune for the bourgeoisie. He thus attempts to evade the task, clearly formulated at Stuttgart and Basel, namely, to utilize the revolutionary crisis for systematic revolutionary propaganda and preparations for revolutionary mass action. Barboni sees quite clearly that Europe is living through a revolutionary moment. Comment here, so this is definitely what happened in Italy at the end of World War I. There was a revolutionary moment. That is, a point in time where a revolution was actually possible, or at least it was actually possible to mount a realistic struggle for an actual revolution. However, because the Italian Socialist Party did not have its stuff together, the moment came and went without revolutionary action by the proletariat. What happened afterward? Fascism, as in actual fascism. Mussolini came to power in the early 1920s, and this was not just an effort to punish the socialists who had organized the kinds of strikes and, and actions that led up to that revolutionary moment, but it was to replace socialism with a decoy movement. The Italian bourgeoisie was so panicked by seeing that revolutionary moment that even though it didn't result in a revolution, they decided that they couldn't take the chance of that ever happening again. So fascism was promoted as an alternative to try to save capitalism. It obviously promoted class collaboration, so seeking to keep capitalism in place, but also borrowing some of the revolutionary aesthetics and appearance of revolution, unfortunately with counter-revolutionary content. This is how the bourgeoisie tends to react to a failed revolutionary moment, by plugging that gap with something like a fascism. Continuing, quote, There is one point on which I deem it necessary to insist, even at the risk of becoming irksome to the reader, because without a clear idea of that point, one cannot correctly estimate the present political situation. The point is that the period we are living through is a catastrophic one, a period of action, when there is no longer any question of propounding ideas, formulating programs, or defining a line of political behavior for the future but of applying a live and active force to achieve results within months, possibly within weeks. Under such conditions, it is no longer a question of philosophizing over the future of the proletarian movement, but of consolidating the point of view of the proletariat in face of the present situation." Unquote. Another sophism under the guise of revolutionism. Forty-four years after the Paris Commune, after half a century of the mustering and preparation of mass forces, the revolutionary class of Europe must, at the present moment, when Europe is passing through a catastrophic period, again World War I, think of how to quickly become the lackey of its national bourgeoisie, how to help it plunder, violate, ruin, and conquer other peoples, and how to refrain from launching, on a mass scale, direct revolutionary propaganda and preparation for revolutionary action. So that's the end of the audiobook. Obviously, Lenin here is mocking the social chauvinists that you have a revolutionary moment passing right before your eyes, and rather than doing direct revolutionary propaganda and preparation for revolutionary action, this is the moment you've been waiting for. And instead, the social chauvinists are trying to figure out how to become the lackey of the national bourgeoisie, how to assist in their plunder, violation, ruination, and conquering of other peoples. This is what social chauvinism, class collaboration, that kind of opportunism is all about. 
And you know what? Fuck that. That's not what we need. We need to fight that in every form in which it appears. We're going to leave it there. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the current patrons whose names are on the screen. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialismforall. There's a link to Patreon in the video description. Every donation is encouraging. They're also materially helpful. I'm not independently wealthy, so this support allows me to spend a lot more time on the channel than I would be able to do otherwise. Also, if you're a patron or not, engagement counts. Like, share, subscribe. Leave a comment, question, any kind of good faith thing is always welcome. Whether you've been a communist for years or whether you just started studying Marxism last week, again, any sort of good faith question is always welcomed. Finally, the class struggle occurs in real life while we are trying to do useful, broad-based agitation and education online. This is in service of getting people aware of the need to do real-world work and hopefully to get a leg up on whatever education your party will be giving you, get kind of a head start there. But do get involved, whether it is in labor union work or tenants union or other kind of community organizing, political parties that are not Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, but something left-wing, anti-capitalist. We need to network and get organized and get to know your local left. Let them get to know you. Those contacts will be useful in the future as the class struggle intensifies. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you in the next video.